Mm. Well, um, if you've been here the last few weeks, uh, you'll know we're, we're doing a mini-series here in the month of December um, and taking a little break from the book of Acts. If you haven't been here in a few weeks, you've been, oh, what happened to Acts? Well, that's what we're doing, and just to let you know we're going to return to Acts. Uh, about middle of January, we've um, we got a couple of things at the beginning of the year, and then we'll, um, the fact the third week, we'll jump back into Acts and just keep plowing through. And um, just to let you know, sometime in that time, in, in late January, early February, probably, um, I'm going to, based upon Acts, I'm going to pull away and do a one standalone message on what does the Bible say about tongues? All right. We dealt with a little bit when we saw the Pentecost, but we're going to come back and kind of look at a survey of what the Scripture teaches about tongues. And I think that a lot of us, um, uh, just throwing this out here, no extra charge this morning. Just kidding. All right. Um, I'm not charging, no. <laughs> I don't charge at all, right? Uh, but uh, 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 our understanding of tongues is, is um, based upon maybe one passage of Scripture or two passages of Scripture. And actually, tongues are spoken of throughout all of Scripture. And to understand them in the New Testament, you under, must understand how they were spoken of and how they were prophesied about in the Old Testament. And often that is neglected. And I think that's why there's a huge confusion about tongues. Uh, were they real things? You bet. And we saw an amazing thing happen in Acts, didn't we? We've seen it happen a couple other times already in Acts as well. And we want to make sure we have a biblical view of that uh, so that, that we can look at Scripture and say, what does the Scripture have to say about this? So it's, it's, it comes up in Acts four different times, so we need to deal with it. But I want us to look beyond Acts um, into also the Old Testament and to the early church. And what did that look like? What was its purpose? Um, and what does that mean for us today? So if you've been looking for that, it's coming. I promise. When we get back into Acts, we'll move a little bit and we'll stop and for one Sunday and spend, spend some time there just on the biblical view of Acts. But this morning, we are continuing our mini-series focusing on the Bible, God's Word. That's the name of the series we're in. And as I mentioned, the first two weeks of this series, it's evident that we here at Grace hold the Bible in high regard. We think a lot about the Bible. Um, and why do we hold it in high regard? Why do we preach the Word? Why do we teach the Word? Why do we memorize the Word? Why do we read through Abide together? Why do we have life groups where we come and talk about the Word? Why do we talk about the importance of living out the Word? Why, why do we do that? Well, the first week of, of this mini-series, we, we answer the question of why we hold the Bible in such high regard uh, with this. The Bible, God's Word, is true. It's true, absolutely true, and every single word is true in God's word. And, um, and then last week we answered this why question, why we hold the Bible in such high regard, is that the Bible, Bible, God's word, is reliable. Meaning, what you hold in your hand, whether it be paper or electronic, all right, you can trust it. You can trust that we have an accurate translation of the Bible, and that's good news, isn't it? Because if, if the Bible is true and we don't have an accurate translation of it, we're in trouble. We have an accurate translation of the Bible, many accurate English versions of the Bible that we can look to and know that it's true. We can trust it and therefore know the heart of God as we study and read and hear and memorize and meditate and all those things with the Word of God. But this week's focus uh, um, is going to be God's Word is sufficient for salvation. God's word is sufficient for salvation. And next week, we're going to deal with this. God's word is sufficient for sanctification. All right? The next two weeks are going to be about the, the sufficiency of the word of God. And before we examine 
God's word is sufficient for salvation. In many texts in, in, in the word of God this morning, I want to pray and ask God to prepare our hearts. Lord, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that um, your word is true. Lord, that we have a reliable uh, translation of your word so that we can trust it and know you and know your heart and know your way of salvation and know more about us and the things that you expect us to, to, to know and expect us to do and expect us to think and, and then the great truth that the Holy Spirit lives inside of those who know you that empowers us to do those things that you expect from us. Lord, thank you for that. And Lord, as we continue to think about your word and why we hold it in such high regard and um, Lord, I pray that you would uh, prepare our hearts and our minds and that we would receive what you would have for us this morning. I pray you would encourage us uh, with your word this morning. pray that you would, uh, in some cases in our lives, challenge us uh, with your word. And Lord, so we trust you to do that. In the name of the one, the word made flesh, Jesus. Amen. Well, when thinking about... Um, this focus of God's word of sufficiency for salvation this morning. Let me first do something. I want to define a couple words. All right. I was reminded of this this week and the importance of defining words that we use. We often use words that you and I might understand or I might not understand, you might understand them, but we don't define words and we don't define words. We, we leave people in the dark. What in the world does that mean? They're saying this word, I have no idea what that means, so they shut us off for the rest of the time, right? So I want to define two words here uh, in, in this God's word is sufficient for salvation. First, let's define the word salvation. Right? That's a big word. You ever heard that word in, in church? In a church you've been to? Yeah, four of us. Great. All right. Hopefully the rest of you heard that too. If not, you heard it this morning. Salvation. You heard it, right? Salvation. All right. We, we use this word a lot in church over and over and over again. And you know what? Rightfully so. It's a biblical word. We should use the word salvation. It's a wonderful word. It's in the Bible. And in fact, it's the main theme of the entire Bible is salvation. That's the theme of the Bible. I'm, as I mentioned to you before, I'm teaching a 10th grade Bible class at Brazosport Christian School. Uh, this year has been a lot of fun, and they've been real challenging in a good way to me, asking me questions, and me trying to help these 18 uh, 10th graders uh, come along and their understanding of the Bible and New Testament in particular. And we started right off with, what's the main message of the Bible? And I put it on every single quiz and test, because I want them to learn, not just know a couple things and we move on. They need to know what the main message of the Bible. And their final this past Wednesday... For the semester, I gave him a final. I wasn't supposed to in Bible, but I did anyway. What a mean teacher, right? But we reviewed this stuff so much, they all made A's, all right? Um, they were smart, not a great teacher, but smart kids. But the very first question, what's the main message of the Bible? Salvation. We got to know that. It's an important word. It's an important theme. It's why God gave us his word so we could know the way of salvation. So, however, we don't want to take for granted that everyone gathering with the church on Sunday morning understands what does that word mean? What, what, what salvation? And we don't want to take that for granted that they know that. And many people will say this. You ever heard this? You need to get saved. And often we, we, we picture stereotypically and maybe the world pictures this. You got to have a hard accent when you say that. You need to get saved. All right, that's often how we, we, we say that. But you know what? We can say in any accent and that statement is true. That's a true statement. But left to itself, you need to get saved. It should cause this question to come up. From what? From what? I can't tell you how many times I've heard people use the word and say, you need to get saved. You need salvation. 
And they never explain and answer the question, saved from what? There's lots of things we could be saved from, rescued from. But the most important thing that we could be saved from is what the Bible speaks of. We need to be saved from the penalty of our sin. We need to be saved from the just wrath of God upon our sin. Because the Bible teaches that we've all sinned. We don't meet his perfect standard. And therefore, the wages or the the, the payment for our sin, what we deserve justly from a just God, is his just wrath, justice, on our sin. And that just wrath brings about death and eternal separation from God in a place called hell or the lake of fire. That's what we need to be saved from. So when we use the word salvation, we're talking about being saved from God's just penalty on our sin because we're all guilty of sin. And and I could ask this question. I guarantee everybody would raise their hand this morning. Who wants to be saved from that? Woo, I do. All of us want to be saved from that. But we've got to explain to people what it is they're being saved from. It's so important. So that's what the Bible speaks of when, when, when we use the word salvation and, or rescued is, is kind of a synonym to that. But understanding what God then did for us. So how can a person be saved? We need to be saved from that. Then how can we be saved? It's by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ who came and paid our sin debt for us. We deserved God's justice, but Jesus got it. It was poured out upon him so that we could be forgiven. He paid the debt that we all owed. And the Bible says if we would turn from trusting in ourselves, trying to meet God's standard, and trust in the fact that Jesus met that standard for us, we will be, listen, saved. We'll be saved from God's just wrath. Salvation, it's a huge word. We need to understand it. And we need to quit taking for granted that everybody understands that word and explain it to him. Don't not use the word. It's a biblical word. I've heard people, you shouldn't use the term elders. Nobody understands that. Well, you know, don't use the word elders if you don't explain it. Yeah, but it's a biblical word. Well, let's use the Greek, presbyteros. How's that any better? All right, come on. That's English for the same thing, all right? So the, the second word I want to, 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 I want to define for us this morning, remind us, the definition of the word sufficient. Sufficient. And... and, and Merriam-Webster's college definition of this, all right, college dictionary definition is this, enough to meet the needs of a situation, having or providing as much as is needed. And in our context of what we're speaking about this morning, we are asking what is needed or what is enough that is needed for salvation. What's the enough? What is the providing as much needed for salvation. What is that? What is sufficient for salvation? The Bible teaches that God's word is sufficient for salvation. Meaning, it's the enough. It's the thing that we need to bring about salvation. It's what God uses to explain to us how we can be made right with him and be saved from the penalty of our sin. It's sufficient. And here, when I say that, we don't need more. It's enough. It's not, a, it's not a limiting word. It's sufficient. That's a solid, strong word. It's sufficient. It's all we need. We don't need more than God's word. Now, some people disagree with, with the fact that God's word is 
enough. They, they think that we need other things in order to be saved from the penalty of our sin. Uh, some say that they believe God's word is sufficient for salvation, and, and yet their actions really don't show that they believe that. It's, we need the word of God and... Okay, and they say that we need the word of God, but they say and we need more than that. Well, I want you to hear some advice about sharing God's message of salvation, the gospel, from a book written years ago in 1959 called Soul Winning Made Easy by C.S. Lovett. All right, Love writes this. The controlled conversation technique it was written in 1959, okay? But you'll see some similarities, all right? The controlled conversation technique is something new in evangelism. It represents a bleak, uh, <laughs> represents a real break uh, breakthrough in soul winning. Older methods dealing with excuses seek to convince a prospect of his needy condition and humble him. The new method ignores excuses and completely sidesteps the explosive area of religious debate. Modern soul winners have discovered that it is unnecessary to change a person's mind before introducing him to Jesus. If he can truly be made aware of Christ waiting at the door of his heart, his responsibility becomes most clear. This makes soul winning a positive ministry requiring fewer skills. Actually, it's a new frontier which allows Christian obedience to become fun. And then Lovett goes on to give a step-by-step. -step. There's some truth in that. There's no doubt. But, but there's some error in that too. Lovett, and I'll show you why. Lovett then goes on to give a step-by-step, word-for-word method to win souls. He then gives the proper gestures to make in order to win souls. He's got all that in there. It's unbelievable. When winning someone's soul, you say, uh, I'd like to read four verses and explain them. At the right moment, your testament is quickly produced from its place of concealment. It's got pictures, all right? And there's a picture of a guy reaching into his coat pocket in the place of concealment where you keep your Bible. And you have to have a small one to get it out, right? And at the right moment, you pull it out. And I want to explain these four verses. The, four, the, the whole four verses thing is great. We, we need to pull that out, but the whole thing with the concealment stuff, I don't know. Well, the book even has pictures to show how to make the right gestures in winning souls. So here's one for when you get to the point of decision, all right? Okay, this is important, okay? So this is, this is a company with the following explanation, how to press for the decision. Lay your hand firmly on the subject's shoulder or arm, and with, listen, semi-commanding tone of voice, say to him, bow your head with me. No, do not look at him when you say this, but bow your head first. Out of the corner of your eye, you will see him hesitate at first. Then, as his resistance crumbles, his head will come down. Your hand on his shoulder will feel the relaxation and you will know when his heart yields. Bowing your head first causes terrific psychological pressure. And it goes on and on and on and on, and it's sickening. Now let me ask you a question. Does this man who wrote this book believe that God's word is sufficient for salvation? No. He does not. Now I will, I'll, I'll give you this. When you read through the, this whole thing, and, and, and that's, he does talk about the importance of understanding and pointing them to the Bible, to the message. And there's no doubt he does that. I want to give him credit for that. And, and what he, he takes him to many verses that I would. There's the revelation, behold, I stand at the door and knock. I would never use in evangelism because it's not for evangelism. Just throw that out there. You guys can go look at the context up on that. But other than that, he does a really good job of pointing to verses that teach us our need for Jesus. 
But then he gets to the whole method part. And he doesn't really trust in the sufficiency of God's word to bring about salvation. And just from those words right there, it should just make you cringe. That you can, and even later he says, if he begins to resist, just squeeze his shoulder a little bit more. I mean, it's like I used to lift weights, and we used to kid about, you know, guys that don't know the Lord, and you're, lift, you're trying to use lifting weights to reach out to people. So we used to kid about them doing bench press and just holding the bar down, you know. Trust Jesus now or go to hell, you know. Like, yeah, I will help you. I mean, that kind of thing. And this is a kind of manipulation, all right, that can happen. And, and we say that we believe that God's word is sufficient for salvation, but do we really believe that God's word is sufficient for salvation? And we use these kind of techniques, we're saying, no, we don't. Um, uh, the Bible is clear that it teaches that God's word is sufficient for salvation. God does not need our special techniques or our semi-commanding tone of voice to save someone from the penalty of their sin. His word is sufficient to bring about salvation. And that's good news because if it's techniques that win him, which one is right? Whose technique is best? Whose semi-commanding tone of voice will get through to their heart? We're in trouble. We don't know. But God's word is sufficient. So let's look at what the Bible has to say about God's word being sufficient for salvation. Uh, and I'm going to do something a little different here this morning than I normally do, which is that you normally take one passage of Scripture and I explain it, right? This one. Well, instead I'm going to use five different passages of Scripture and explain five different passages of Scripture this morning. Briefly. All right, that, this, there's like 10 sermons in these five, well, maybe more than that, 20. All right, but I'm just going to do that, and I want to show you from these passages of Scripture the fact that God's Word is sufficient for salvation. I'm, I'm going to do this to stress to you and to me, to remind you and me that the Bible t clearly teaches that God's Word is sufficient for salvation. Therefore, you need nothing else when presenting the gospel to someone other than they need to clearly hear what God's word has to say about salvation. Now, I'm not saying we should not be excellent. All right? I'm not saying we can't use, you know, um, microphones so that we, people can better hear or visual aids or whatever it might be. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying we need to make sure that we get across the word of God. And when the word of God has gotten across to the life of people, maybe in Braille. That's how Helen Keller actually was in the Braille. That somebody was writing on her hand before she even knew Braille. And she came to know Jesus. Somebody communicated to her the, her the word of God. That's what's important. Communicating God's word because it is sufficient for salvation. Alright? So, and I'm just going to take <clears throat> um, these five passages in order in which they appear in the New Testament. Alright? So the first one I want us to look at is Luke 16. If you have your Bibles, let me encourage you this. I want you to turn in your Bibles if you have a copy of God's Word with you. If not, I'm going to pull it up on the screen for those who may have not forgotten to bring it uh, today. But I want, if you have your Bibles, I want you to open it to Luke 16, 19 through 21. And I'm going to read um, this passage of Scripture entirety and then make some comments. Um, and you may see this passage in a whole new light, or at least the last part of it in a whole new light. It's a very familiar passage, the rich man and Lazarus, Luke 16. Now there was a rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in splendor every day. Verse 20, And a poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate, cover, covered with sores, and longed to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming and licking his sores. Now the poor man died and was carried away by the angels to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. 
In Hades he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I'm in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things and likewise Lazarus bad things, but now he isn't being comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great chasm fixed so that those who wish to come over from here to you will not be able and that none may cross over from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, that you send him speaking of Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brothers, in order that he may warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear, hear them. But he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded, even if someone raises from the dead. Now notice Abraham's response. This is, of course, this is, I don't, I'm not going to deal with the whole first part of this, this parable. Some people don't think it's a parable. They think it's an actual happening because it's the only thing that's listed as a parable where someone's name is mentioned, Lazarus. So it may not be just a parable. It may be more than that, actually, a true story about um, this man, Lazarus, and this rich man. But we're not going to deal with that part of it or Hades and Abraham's bosom and all that kind of stuff this morning. I want us to look at, at the last part of it and Abraham's response to this rich man when the rich man asked him to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers. Uh, if you look there in verse 27, um, uh, he said, um, Abraham says that they do not lead Lazarus to go back from the dead because they already have Moses and the prophets. Look at that. He says, Then I beg you, Father, send them back to my father's house where I have five brothers in order they may be warned so they will not also come to the place. So I don't want them to come. I want them to be saved. I want to be saved from the torment I'm under. And Abraham's response is, but Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. What do they have? God's word. That's the Old Testament. Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and sometimes summarized in Jewish culture, if you say Moses and the prophets, you're talking about all 39 books of the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets. Abraham says they don't need anything else. They've got God's word. And now look at verse um, 30. He says, but... He says, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. I mean, if you would raise Lazarus from the dead, they'll repent for sure. Then they're going to see a miracle. And if he comes and warns them, then they'll repent for sure. But what is Abraham's response? He said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. But listen, the word of God is sufficient for them to be saved where you are. It's sufficient for salvation. Do you all see that? This is one of the greatest passages of Scripture. Jesus is speaking this parable or half parable, whatever it is. He's telling this, and at the end, he holds up the sufficiency of Scripture for salvation. If they don't listen to the Word of God, you can perform all the miracles you want, and that won't save them. They need the Word of God, and that's all they need. The Word of God clearly is sufficient for salvation. Now look with me. Turn your Bibles. The next one is Romans 10. So turn your Bibles or flip in your Bibles or scroll or whatever you need there. Romans 10. Acts Romans 10. 
And we're going to read another long, this is the second long passage. The rest of the passage will be shorter. But I want us to see this in context. Um, because I want you to know when you walk out of here, if you don't already know, or at least be reminded or strengthened in your belief that the word of God is sufficient for salvation. I want you to know that. All right, we're going to read Romans 10, 1 through 17. All right, so here we go. Brethren, this is Paul writing to the church of Rome, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, speaking of the Jews here in context, is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for the righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes that the man who practices the righteousness, which is based on law, shall live by that righteousness. But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will ascend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So you see all through this passage that it's about faith that brings salvation. That's what this passage is about. A faith that brings salvation. Well, the question should be faith in what? All right, and it's clear, faith in Jesus for salvation. That he, faith in what Jesus has done. You confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus raised from the dead, and you, that you will be saved from that. If, if, that you believe that with all that you are, if you have faith in that. And this message comes, this is amazing, from God's word. In that passage, and if you kept going in chapter 10, you would find more. There are four quotes from the Old Testament. And this is what Paul bases his message on of salvation. Faith in Jesus for salvation is the scripture in the word of God. Not in antidotes. Now, antidotes can be good to help us explain and understand the word of God. But it points back to the word of God. Four quotes from the Old Testament here in these first 17 verses. In order for people to be saved by faith in Jesus through his word, they must call on the name of the Lord. They must call on the name of the Lord. And, and they cannot do this unless they hear the word of God about salvation. They must hear the word of God about salvation. Not about something else. Not by someone else. But from the word of God. And it's summed up in verse 17. This is probably the most famous verse in, in, in chapter 10. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. And where do we have the word of Christ? In the word of God. Because he is God. 
And everything he spoke was God speaking. You see, it's clear that God's word is sufficient for salvation. It's all that's needed. All that's needed. Now let's, let's move on to the third passage of scripture this morning. Which is in 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 15. Alright, you however continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of knowing from whom you have learned them and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. If you didn't get a chance to turn there, I'll give you a chance to turn there so you can see the context. Alright, 2 Timothy. First Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy. Titus, all the T's are together in the New Testament. That's how I remember it. All right, that may be too simple for you, but it's perfect for me. All the T's together. All right, and we're looking at the Second Timothy, uh, three fourteen through fifteen. Now, up to this point, um, Paul has been warning Timothy of uh, difficult times that will come, and people will walk away from the faith, and they will not teach things that are true. And he's warning uh, them, and then he says here in. Um, and then also promises that those who choose to live godly lives will be persecuted. So I just want to encourage you with that this morning, okay? If you want to live godly, you'll be persecuted, all right? But then he goes on, he says, you however. Tim, this is different with you, okay? You don't have to worry about uh, teaching the wrong thing and about these evil imposters who are saying the wrong things. You, however, Timothy, you know the truth. Now, if you were at, at, um, um, with us on Thursday morning with Bibles, Bros, and Breakfast, this is where we were in, in 2 Timothy. Great passage, and I don't have time to go into all of it, but it's a great passage. But he says that you, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of. Right? He believes this with all that he is, knowing from whom you learned him, which is mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, we learned that from uh, the, the first part of 2 Timothy. And listen in verse 15, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to, to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. You've got to ask, what are the sacred writings? What had Timothy grown up with? Well, we learn in Acts um, that Timothy had a Jewish mother and he was Jewish. And he learned these sacred writings, which were the Old Testament, that we saw the law, Moses, and the prophets. Okay? This is what, what he said. He's basically saying, from the Old Testament, Timothy, those things that you learned, they give you wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He learned it in the Old Testament. So how in the world can you learn about salvation from the Old Testament? Well, it's all over the place. The Messianic Psalms that we're reading, you can almost piece together the Passion Week of Jesus from those, from the last week of Jesus' life, just from those Psalms. It's amazing. Um, from the prophets who prophesied about who Jesus was and the importance that we would place faith in Jesus and we would get a new heart. And it's just all over the place. All the Pentateuch, all the law, all the prophets, all the Psalms, all the poetry literature, all the minor and major prophets, all that. But I can tell you right now, you can share the gospel and you can know a way of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ from the first three chapters of Genesis. If this is all that he would have known, he could have had faith in the Messiah who was to come. What do I mean by that? Genesis 1, 1 says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Wow. 
Someone created all that we see around us. And we got a lot of people in here who are a lot smarter than me when it comes to sciences. And you begin to study these things. And I mean, I'm getting chills right now. You begin to, even my simple understanding of the sciences. Whoa, God made that. And there's some things that scientists even, they label it. We don't understand this. But we know it's true. God made that too. He understands it because he made it. The Bible teaches from the very beginning of Genesis that God is sovereign. He's the creator of all things. And things we don't even understand. Things we don't even know about. He's the creator of all those things. He is sovereign. And he made the world perfect. And behold, it was good. It was good. It was good. And then when he made man and woman, he said, it was very good. We're the crown of his creation. Man and woman. And then it tells us his standard. He says to Adam, he says, Adam, man, look at all you have around, all this I've created. You can have it all. I want you to enjoy it all. But there's one thing, just one thing I want you to stay away from. Don't eat from the fruit, from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will surely die. That's all he gives him. One instruction. One instruction. So God says, by creating, I'm, I'm, in, I'm in charge, I'm creator, I'm sovereign. And I'm giving you one thing. One thing. That's my standard. That's how I want you to live. And then we see in chapter 3, here comes the serpent. And he tempts Eve, and she gives him that temptation. And guys, don't point to Eve, because it says in the man, in, in the, in the man who was with her, he was with her. He was deceived as well. And he fell in temptation. And he also took from the fruit. And they sinned. That's man's problem. And it's separated from God. The first thing that you see with Adam and Eve in the garden is them trying to hide from God. Can you imagine this? I won't break anything, Greg. Don't worry. All right? I mean, they're trying to hide from God in the garden. And this is how silly it would be. How do you hide from God? It'd be like this. Me trying to hide behind this music stand. It's silly, but that's what they do because they're ashamed and now they're separated from God. There's no longer this fellowship. There's no longer this perfect relationship with man and God. They're separated. Man's got a problem. They're separated from the God who created everything. That's not good, is it? That's horrible news. But listen to this. If you want to look there with me, you can look at Genesis 3.15. And God comes through with his provision for man's problem. Look at Genesis 3.15. He makes a promise. And this is speaking. Uh, he gives the curses to the serpent and then the, the woman and then, um, and then the man. All right? And in verse 15 of Genesis 3.15, in his curse of the serpent, look what he says. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the the heel. Let me just tell you, that's the gospel. That's the good news because they're separated from God. And their sin deserves God's wrath and his just wrath on their sin. But he says to the serpent, buddy, Mr. Sin Bearer, meaning you, you brought sin in the world. Yes, you did, but Adam and Eve were responsible for what they did. But listen to me. I'm going to put enmity, I'm going to put strife and anger and conflict between you and the woman. And between, listen what happens. And between your seed or offspring and her 
seed. Now the offspring is going to come from the woman. Okay? From Eve. Her offspring. Well, here's what's going to happen. And he. Oh, now this seed or this offspring has become personal. Pronoun. Masculine. He will bruise you on the head and you speaking the serpent and you shall bruise him on the heel. Which one's the fatal wound? The head wound or the, the head wound or the heel wound? The head wound. And this is a prophecy of the cross where Jesus crushes the serpent because he dies for sin. And he takes care of the problem. And yes, he's hurt. He got a little heel wound, but he rises again and overcomes sin and death. God's provision is his son. And the rest of the Bible explains Genesis 3.15. Who is this seed? This he who will come and bruise and crush the serpent's head and take care of the sin problem. It's Jesus. None other than the Messiah. Genesis 3. And how about this? What's man's response? We see man's response right here in Genesis 3. Look at verses 20 through 21. If you have your Bible open. After the rest of the curse of man and woman, it says, Now the man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all the living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Here's a response. That now the man called his wife's name life. Life. Do you think that they believe, they trusted in God's promise of this man, this one who would come and conquer the serpent? You bet, because there was hope. Someone was going to come and bring life over death. The one of Genesis 3.15. And he names his wife life. Because he believed God's promise. And then look what God does. He makes animal garments, of, makes garments from Adam and Eve and clothed them. And then we see throughout the Old Testament, the sacrifices become prominent as they're all pointing to Jesus the one who was innocent had to die. Just like the innocent animals had to die for them to be clothed. Just like the innocent animals had to die in the Old Testament the sacrificial system. Not that they'd be forgiven. That they would point ultimately to the Messiah who would forgive them. Same thing. So you see here in Genesis 1 through 3. God's creator. He's sovereign. He has a standard. Man breaks the standard. That's man's problem. They're separated from God from sin. God's provision is his son Jesus. And man's response is faith in God's word. So what did Timothy know? He at least knew that. And that was enough to lead him to salvation. Isn't that good news? That's great news. So once again, we see God's word is, God's word is sufficient for salvation. Now let's look at James. All right, you can go back to the New Testament. I'll bring it up there for those who may have forgotten their sword this morning, their copy of God's word. Chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Here we go, 17 and 18. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits among his creatures. Verse 17 teaches that every perfect gift comes from God, the Father. All right, every perfect gift. That's verse 17. And then the greatest gift, the greatest of those perfect gifts is the gift of salvation. Verse 18. Notice the phrase, he brought us forth. Or other translations say, he gave us new birth. The King James says, he begat us. Right? You the begat means it has to do with birth. 
It, it came from him. He, he gave birth. All right? It's speaking of salvation because when someone places their faith in the work of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, we're not only saved from the penalty of sin, but we're given a new life, a new heart. He, he brings new life in salvation. So what is the instrument or means by which the new birth comes that God gives? Look now there again in verse 18. By or through the word of truth, God brings forth new birth through the agency of his word, which brings about salvation, regeneration. We got other words, justification. It all kind of happens there at once. Boom. Right, we can break them down and help us understand it greater, but that's what happens. Through God's word. He brings about new birth through his word. It's evident that God's word is sufficient for salvation. Here's the fifth one. 1 Timothy 22 through 25. First, I mean, first, Peter, first Peter, sorry. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. 1 Peter 22 through 25. Beginning in verse 22. So you have, since you have an obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart for... He's telling why they should fervently love from the heart. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. What does verse 23 say about how we've been made, how have been born again? Through the living an enduring word of God. We've been born again. We've been given new life. We've been saved from the penalty of our sin and given new life, new birth through the word of God. Now that's just five passages. I could give you more. But time doesn't allow this morning. But it's evident from his word that his word is sufficient for salvation. We don't need techniques. Again, I'm not saying don't be clear. All right? We don't need techniques. We don't need certain voice tones. We don't need necessarily a method. We need God's word. And we need to clearly present it to people so that they, too, can be saved. His word is sufficient. All right, well, so what? God's word is sufficient. Let me give you two things and then a few things else behind that, all right? There's two things. This is a preacher's prerogative, right? Give you two points and a few more. All right, here we go. Since God's word is sufficient for salvation, first of all, take his word to the world. Take his word to the world. I had also gone to Psalm 19 and showed you, and I've talked about this many times, creation can never, looking at God's creation, whoa, can never ever lead someone to salvation. It doesn't tell them of their sin. You have to take them and show them in the word of God. That's why the second half of Psalm 19 is there. It talks about the, the law of the Lord is perfect and reviving the soul. And talks about you need that to explain the creation and all the wonderful things God has made. So his word, we must take his word to the world because it's sufficient for salvation. How are we doing about taking his word to the world? And I'm not, that take, I'm not telling, maybe God is calling you to some foreign country. But how about your family? And your neighbors and the people you come in contact with every day. Because that's their only hope for salvation. 
is God's Word. And we are called to take it to Him. Secondly, since God's Word is sufficient for salvation, know His Word. Know His Word. You have to know it to tell it to someone else. It's okay if you keep it in its concealed compartment here too, okay? Whatever it is. If you have to bring one out, great. Bring it out. But take them to the Word. But it's even better if you know it and somebody, you don't, you're not carrying it along. Don't wear, not wearing your coat pocket. You don't have one stuffed down your pants. Alright? Know His Word so you can tell people about it. And that's what we're emphasizing in this series over and over is to get into God's Word. Alright, if you've been here, you know what to do. Hold up your hand with me. Hold up your hand. The first thing of five things that, that we need to do with the Word of God, and they can happen sometimes all at once. Alright, is this. Number the one, the pinky is what? Hear God's Word. Alright? The ring finger is what? Read God's Word. Alright? The middle finger is study God's Word. The pointing finger is what? Memorize God's Word and meditate on God's Word. So we hear, we read, we study, we memorize, and we meditate on God's Word. How do we hear it? We hear it, we can come here and hear it preached every Sunday morning. You can hear it on your iPod. You can listen to the Word of God through that or on your computer or on your 8-track, whatever you got. All right? You can hear the Word of God, and we need to hear the Word of God. Remember, the first people who heard the Word of God, they heard, I mean, the Word of God was given, they heard it. They didn't read it first. They read it later, but they heard it first. It's part of our senses. We need to hear the Word of God. Second, we need to read it. And you can do a lot of reading plans. You need to read your Bible. And that's why we have the abide. It's not overwhelming. You basically one, sometimes two chapters a day. If you're in the Word of God, reading the Word of God, it will change you as you read the Word of God. Then, then you need to study the Word of God. All right? And you can do that personally. You should do it personally, studying the Word of God in our life groups, in our children's ministry, men's ministry, women's ministry, youth ministry, one-to-one, all those things. We, we study the Word of God. And then you memorize the Word of God. And I mentioned this to you. 52 verses, one a week is all. And I guarantee if you, if you if you take five minutes a day, just five minutes a day, and you work on memorizing, you'll memorize the verses. Trust me, it's repetition, but it's not 25 minutes one time a week. It's five every day. Every day, and you'll have it. So I want to point out to you a couple of things. On our website, if you go to resources and the abide link, okay, it, when you click the abide page, it'll come up, and at the bottom is all 52 verses listed out there on our webpage right now. I checked it out. Jared did a good job putting it up. I had no idea it gets on there, but it gets on there. Thanks, Jared. It, they're all, all 52 are on there. The first one, Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What better place to start? That's the first verse to memorize together. All right, this next year. All right, it's got 51 more. All right, this is an app that you can get on your phone if you're an app person called Fighterverse. It's a little cross thing. I showed that because that's the little icon for app. And it's, it's, to me, it's the greatest tool I've ever seen to help you memorize scripture. It's got all these quizzes and you, you can load in your own scripture. So you go in there and you can load in Genesis 1-1, whatever translation you like. ESV, New American Standard, King James, New King James, uh, Holman, Christian Standard. Um, all those are all real good translations, whatever it is. You can plug that translation in there and you, it will give you a quiz. It'll, you can recite it and it'll recite it back to you. It's amazing. And if you took five minutes working on that every day, Fighter versus app, you will know these word, God's word. You will be able to memorize his word. So I encourage you, if you don't have this app, get this app too. Uh, what is it, Jared? 299. If you don't have the 299, see me. All right, we'll make sure you get 299 to get that app on your phone. It's that important. And it will really help you because you can carry it around all the time and learn 
God's Word. Memorize it. Also, another tool that kind of goes along with where I got those 52 verses, because you could pick 52 verses from anywhere, right? This is actually called, it's a book by O.S. Hawkins, and uh, it's called The Joshua Code. All right? In Joshua 1, 8 and 9, it talks about meditating on the Word day, day and night, so you may be careful to do all that's written in it. And when you do this, he will make your way prosperous and you will have success. It's talking about memorizing the Word of God. Write it on your heart. He encourages Joshua to do this, all right? Well, he picks out 52 verses. That's, that's the principle of the Joshua Code. It's to memorize Scripture. And there's a devotion with each one of the verses. If that's something that you might, it might help you, so it's, it's called the Joshua Code by O.S. Hawkins. If it's another tool you want to help you memorize and understand what you're memorizing, it's a great little tool. All right, the Joshua Code by O.S. Hawkins. All right, uh, and the last one, all right, that's just memorized. The last one is to meditate on God's Word. Now, there's a method um, out there. A lot of church, I don't know who came up with it, okay? Uh, there's a few churches I found on their website. Jared pointed out to me on Austin Stone's website. But it's called REAP, R-E-A-P. Four things, read. There's another thing you've got to remember, right? But you can write that down, REAP, okay? Read, examine, apply, pray. So when you go to the Word of God to read it and study it, all right, you open your Bible and you ask the Holy Spirit to teach you, all right, when you're reading it and train you. And as you're reading that, you ask questions like, what is, what's the meaning of this passage? What's happening here? What's emphasized? What's repeated? What do you see about God? What do you see God doing in this passage? What do you see about man? That's those kind of questions. You begin to, this is really on the meditate part. You're meditating on the word. You're thinking, you're asking questions of the text. This is a lost art in Christianity because we think negatively when we think about meditate because there is a bunch of weird meditation out there that's not true meditation, but it doesn't mean to empty your head. It means to take into your head and mull it over. And we're called to meditate on God's Word over and over in His Word in, in the Bible. So we read, then we examine. So we reflect, ask, ask these kind of questions. How do you think the author wants this audience to respond? What do you learn about God's character? What wrong beliefs about God and myself did I have based upon that piece, that piece of script, passage of Scripture? Then apply. You examine the passage, you ask those questions. Here's some more questions. How do I need to repent? What truths do I need to believe? What false beliefs do I need to turn from? What can I do empowered by the Holy Spirit to apply this passage? It's just asking questions. You're meditating on the Word. And then lastly, pray. Pray through the passage and its application, asking God to use His Word to bring about transformation in your life so you can take it to the world. So read. Read. You're reading it. You're examining it. You're applying it. You're praying. That kind of goes along with really the meditation part. Right? Really taking it in. And then ask God to do a work in your life. It's good stuff. Good stuff. Why? Why do we need to know all this? Well, today's answer is this, because God's word is sufficient for salvation. And my prayer, I think I've said this many times already today, I've shared what salvation's about multiple times today. And my prayer is that you would be saved from God's just wrath on your sin. And if you've never turned from trusting yourself to meet God's standard and turned to Jesus Christ for what he did for you and paid your sin debt, I pray that you do that today. Turn and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that it is sufficient for salvation. Lord, what an encouragement. Lord, we don't have to have some special training to take the word to the world. We just need your word. So, Lord, help us write it. We pray, Lord, by your grace, you would, as we're in it and reading it and, and meditating on it and hearing it and, and memorizing it and studying it and all those things, Lord, that, that you would make us more like Jesus so that we can take your word to the world and see you bring about salvation in the lives of men, women, boys, and girls all over this planet. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.